You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Beginning of John's Gospel, which many people don't think is, you know, an Advent passage or having anything to do with the Nativity, but I think it does. Let's read it now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the very, very beginning of John's gospel. Now, most people wouldn't consider that a Christmas passage, right? It's not really the nativity story, right? The nativity story, we're led to believe, comes strictly out of Matthew and Luke, right? Because that's where we find the stuff about the virgin birth and Bethlehem and the wise men and the manger and the star and the angels and the shepherds in the fields, right? That's all Matthew and Luke. Mark and John's gospel begin with Jesus as an adult. It begins right with his ministry. But I actually think this is a true nativity story. This is actually a kind of cosmic version of the nativity story, perhaps. And I want us to think about it like that today. Last Sunday night, Aiden and I, you know, Aiden, Aiden, where are you at the moment? There he is, back there. Aiden's kind of our, our tech and sound guy these days. Aiden and I went to a church downtown called St. John's Cathedral. This was Aiden's idea, by the way. Um, <laughs> Uh, for an interesting service. Now, St. John's Cathedral is this big, beautiful, old Episcopal church in downtown LA right by USC. I actually have a picture of the, of the sanctuary right there. It kind of gives you an idea. You know, it's this wonderful, you know, beautiful, cavernous, ornate, old sanctuary, right? And we went there for a special service called Compline. Compline. Now, this is an ancient Christian tradition dating all the way back to the 6th century. It's a 1,400-year-old church service. And it began as essentially a service for monks, a service geared towards helping them wind down at the end of their busy workday and prepare themselves for rest and sleep. And so this is a service that always took place at night and by candlelight. It takes place at 8 p.m. on the first and third Sundays uh, during the winter over, you know, at, at this cathedral. If you're interested, you can ask Aiden about it more or me. And we're planning on going again. That's a sort of a tangent. Some of us, if you're interested, let us know. You can come with us. Uh, so anyway, you walk into the sanctuary. Somebody hands you a candle, all right, and a program and tell, tell you to go sit in the choir by the altar. Now, in a cathedral like in a kind of a very traditional cathedral, the choir is up on the platform. You can kind of see it there. It's by the altar. There's these pews that face each other. We actually used to have a choir loft up here back in the day. And so you sit there. There's maybe about 15 or 25, 20 of us, less people than even this. And again, the room is completely dark. The sanctuary is completely dark except for just candlelight. And you're holding a, a lit candle yourself. And so the whole place is, is bathed, but just a little bit in candlelight. It feels very mysterious. And then suddenly, this kind of ethereal singing starts. Not from us, not from those who are sitting there, but behind the altar is a choir. And they begin singing this liturgical, ancient liturgical um, songs. It sounds like Gregorian chant, if you're familiar. And so it's very just 
moving and powerful and you sit there holding your candle, you know, listening to this beautiful singing just fill the sanctuary with this candlelight. It's very moving. And in between the liturgies are these prolonged moments of silence and that's intentional. It's meant to be a time of contemplation and meditation. I was very moved by all of this, deeply moved actually. Um, it's only a half an hour, but it, it felt, I don't know, it, it felt longer, it felt very profound. I, and I was thinking last Sunday night I was, as I was sitting there about how much I've changed spiritually over the years, how much my beliefs about God have changed, how much about the ways I've, I read the Bible and think about church and how much of that has changed. And yet, I was somewhat surprised by the fact that the way that I experience God hasn't changed. What I mean is, sitting there, I had a profound sense of connection to something much bigger than myself. I, I had a profound sense of connection to something ineffably beautiful and meaningful. I say ineffable because it, it defies words, right? For all the changing I've done <laughs> over the years and my theology and what I no longer believe, right? I still connect. I still, and I think that's true for a lot of us, right? How many of you can sympathize with what I'm saying here this morning? And you're sitting here in a church on a Sunday morning and many of you are in deconstruction, right? And deconstruction, as we know, is a, is a state of being. It's not like something that ends one day. You kind of you live there now, right? But something doesn't change. Something actually doesn't change, I, I would argue. And that is that sense of transcendence, that sense of being connected to something, an event, we would call it, an event of being. God is like an event in the human experience that we don't have words for, the sense of the sacred, the sense of the divine, the sense of being connected to something truly transcendent, something that defies explanation, that transcends culture, time and place. Human beings across time and culture, we all experience this, I would argue. So even though our ideas about God might have changed, our beliefs, I would argue our, our sense of the transcendence has not changed. And for me, it's actually been honed, I would say. It's been honed, it's been purified. It's been through a crucible. I like that word, crucible. It's been through a crucifixion. It's also been through a resurrection. Something in me has been born again. Perhaps you feel the same way. This is what I was thinking about last week. I'm sitting there in St. John's Cathedral downtown with Aiden, and uh, I wanted to share that today, um, this second Sunday of Advent. Um, and I wanted to share it in the context of this passage in, you know, first in John. Um, before we get into that a little more, I, I want to say that what I'm talking about this morning this, this idea of God that I want to discuss. This is called panentheism. I'm what you might call at this point, I'm going to own this. Maybe I shouldn't, but I'm going to own it. I'm what you might call a panentheist. What does that mean? Well, pan means all, en means in or within, theist means God. All within God, it means. Now, I love how the sunlight suddenly comes to the window on me as soon as I say that. Um, 
look into, read into that what you will. Okay. But uh, this is not pantheism. You might have heard of pantheism before. Pantheism means all is God. Everything is God. God is the universe. Everything is God. Um, that's okay. You can be a pantheist. That's cool. Uh, I'm not. I, I have some issues with that. I'm more of what you might call a panentheist. All is within God. And what I mean by that, illustration, good illustration. I, this is, I didn't come up with this. Somebody else did. Think of this being like a boat and a ship sunk within the ocean, a ship that's sitting now on the ocean floor. God can be understood as the ocean and we are the ship. The ship is not the ocean and the ocean is not the ship, right? They're two different things. And yet the ship is enveloped by the ocean. It's immersed in the ocean. In fact, the ocean, the ship actually contains a small portion of the sea within its hull now, right? The hull is broken open. The hull is filled with the sea, but obviously not the entire sea, just a small portion of it, right? This is how I, I think of God. We are immersed in the, in the divine. We are not God, so to speak, right? God is something else. God transcends the universe, and yet somehow God envelops and interpenetrates the universe, I would say. And I don't mean to promote panentheism this morning as a view everybody has to hold, okay, just to be very clear, um, but I have found this to be enormously helpful, me, in my reconstruction, okay? And perhaps I can offer it to you this morning as a possibility. You know, we're very interested not just in deconstruction here, but what reconstruction might look like. This is an idea that has been very helpful for me, this idea of panentheism. And what I like about it is it doesn't make hard claims about the nature of God. It leaves open, leaves itself open to a variety of different understandings of God and a variety of different readings of the Bible. Panentheism doesn't tell us how to define God or how to read the Bible. It leaves it open. So this is not a new kind of fundamentalism, all right? I, I hold my, my panentheism like this rather than like this, right? Remember how we used to hold on to our faith like this with a kind of kung fu grip, this kind of desperate, I'm right and they're wrong and I know God and I'm certain and I know that I know that I know, right? This kind of anxious grip, right? This is kind of the, our experience of evangelicalism and conservatism, right? But we've learned to hold on to our beliefs like this, which is much more healthy. It means, you know, I might be wrong about this stuff. Who knows? I might be, I might be totally wrong. But this is meaningful for me. This is, this is how I hold on to a great mystery. And this is how I relate now to my Christianity in passages like ours this morning in the first chapter of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and within him, I'm sorry, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all the people, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is some esoteric stuff. This is kind of trippy stuff, actually. And it gets trippier when you consider that when John uses the word, word here, you've heard me maybe talk about this before, in the Greek, he's using the word logos, and that word is translated into the English as simply word, but I think that confuses the matter. 
John is not, in fact, I was raised to read this passage, I don't know about you, to mean when John says the word, he's talking about the scriptures. When he says the word, you know, was with God and the word was God, it's talking about, you know, what we find in the Bible, as if John is saying, in the beginning was the Bible, and the Bible was with God, and the Bible was God. No! No! That's absolutely not what he's saying. This is much more mystical and metaphysical than that. The original word he's using here in the Greek is this word logos, and what you need to know about logos is it is a part of Greek metaphysics. The Greeks understood logos as being this, this idea of the divine animating wisdom of the universe. This kind of esoteric, mystical idea that there is this transcendent consciousness that undergirds all of reality. Everything takes its being within the Logos. Everything finds its being within it. All life springs out of Logos, out of... There is nothing in existence, living or otherwise, that does not exist without, out of this Logos. Logos is the divine animating wisdom of the universe, a transcendent consciousness that undergirds all of reality. And this is one of the earliest Christian conceptions of God. Paul himself subscribes to this metaphysics. Acts 17, he's debating with the philosophers of Athens on Mars Hill, and he says, you know, I really like what even your own poets say about God, and he quotes them. In him we live and move and have our being. In God we live and move and have our being, our beinghood, our existence takes place within the beinghood, the divine and sacred essence of all things. Panentheism, God, all within God. This isn't some newfangled, postmodern, progressive Christian New Age baloney. This, this is some of the oldest ways of thinking about God and what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be a Christian. This is biblical Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. And we're, we're really traditionalists actually here. <laughs> you know, we, maybe we like to fancy ourselves as revisionists. We're actually traditionalists if we're, you know, advocating for a kind of panentheism. This is traditional Christianity. Um, and what's important to understand about this vision of God I'm putting forward this morning this is radically different from this dualistic understanding of God that many of us were raised in. Dualistic meaning binary. This, this, this idea that God is somewhere up there. God is a being somewhere up there, you know, the old man in the sky, and we're down here, and there's this kind of two-world split. There's the spirit world above and the physical realm below. I am saying that I no longer believe in any of that. God for me is no longer a being somewhere up there, out there. God for me is a sacred and divine dimension to this right here, right now. When we say Emmanuel, God with us, I take that quite literally. There is no distinction for me anymore between spirit and matter, or the physical and the spiritual. The material is immaterial. There is something transcendent within the imminent. Is this not really what the incarnation, the idea of God becoming enrobed in flesh, entering into space-time, entering into history, means? Perhaps? Perhaps? At least this is where I'm at on this. 
It's interesting. Science itself is, is leaning towards this direction for us even. You think about, you know, uh, theories, I guess we'll say it, the law, the conservation of energy. The law of the conservation of energy says that energy is eternal. It's infinite, it's eternal. It can neither be created or destroyed. Energy can neither be created or destroyed, but everything's energy, just in different states. Matter itself is energy. Matter is spirit, is what I'm saying. The physical is spirit. It's, it's all spirit. Everything is spirit. Everything is energy. I think it's a wonderful way of understanding what it means to be spiritual today in a kind of mystical way that's also deeply Christian. Everything is spirit. We need to cut off, I believe, this dualistic binary thinking of God and the spiritual as being something else. Know this right now. This is sacred. This is spirit. This is divine. Christ is with us right here, right now. Where two or more are gathered in my name, he says, I am there in their midst. The kingdom of God is among you, Christ taught us. The kingdom of God is within you. Here is God. Here is Christ. Think about how if we really believe that, how that could change everything about the way that we live, the way that we treat each other, the way that we think politically, socially, economically, right? A radically different way of living in the world. Christ is here. There is no distinction between physical and spiritual, material and immaterial, transcendent and imminent. It's all right here, right now. Eternity in this moment. I've, you can tell I'm deeply moved by that. I, I love this stuff. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and talk about panpsychism for a moment, so don't freak out, okay? But <laughs> I, I find this, there's this new, it's not even new, this is old stuff actually, but there's this uh, theory out there right now that's being taken quite seriously by scientists and philosophers called panpsychism. Don't let the name fool you. It has nothing to do with psychics or astrology or crystals. But it's this idea that consciousness is the intrinsic nature of the universe itself. This is not, um, th this is actually a mainstream, this is a mainstream view today. By a lot of atheist scientists are actually seeing, seeing this as being a, a valid theory, a as valid as the multiverse theory. If you're familiar with uh, your physics, the multiverse theory is a way of explaining how life could come to an exist. Right? The idea is that there's trillions of different universes and we finally landed in one that has just the right fine-tuning to allow life to come to exist. This other panpsychism says, no, no, no. Well, perhaps multiverse, perhaps. But perhaps consciousness is not some aberration. Perhaps consciousness is not a novel by just a novel byproduct of an advanced brain like ours. Perhaps consciousness is the intrinsic nature of all things. This would explain how life could come to exist seemingly under the power of its own volition in a universe made up of non-living components, which is an incredible idea. This could explain why this universe and its four forces, electromagnetism, gravitation, and the weak and strong nuclear forces, why it's fine-tuned to such a precise degree to allow life to come to exist. Consciousness is the intrinsic fundamental nature of all things. This doesn't mean, and I know it sounds crazy, but again, this is mainstream science today. This does not mean that rocks and socks, tables and chairs are conscious or have an inner life like us, but it does mean that electrons and neutrons and the, the very 
foundational building blocks of the universe have a kind of consciousness. In, in, incomprehensibly simple form, okay? It sounds crazy, but this is mainstream stuff today, all right? I'm mentioning it simply because I want to bolster our, understand, our, our spiritual understanding of the world in which we live. Again, this panpsychism, to be very clear, is not theology, it's not religion, it's neither atheism or theism. But I think for those of us who are people of faith, I think we can take that as enormously encouraging, especially if we're panentheists, <laughs> you know, that this idea that the sacred and the divine is already here. It's, it's, there is no two-world split. This is spiritual. This is God. This is sacred. This is divine. The, trans, the logos, the logos, the transcendent consciousness of the divine is already here, saturating everything. We are that ship sunk within the ocean of God, and we have within ourselves just a small part of that sea. This, this is the way I'm thinking lately. This is, I guess, a picture of my reconstruction, you could say, and maybe, it, maybe it's meaningful for you too. That's why I'm, I'm sharing it. Um, and, you know, today is the second Sunday of Advent, as, as Max said, and our theme is peace. And I just, I wanted to share this also because I take great peace in these ideas. I find a kind of serenity, a kind of peace of mind, and, a, and frankly, these ideas for me add a certain richness to life. It's an added richness. Um, I, I, I think it enhances my sense of wonder and awe and mystery, and maybe it can for you too give you some peace and some serenity and some greater wonder and awe in your spiritual experience. I hope so. I also want to say that I, I think that th these ideas of God and the divine, I, th I think it leads us to a place of greater moral and ethical goodness. <laughs> I think it leads us to a better place morally and ethically. You know, it's funny, I, I've never met somebody with a panentheistic worldview that was just a horrible person. <laughs> Just a racist, a sexist, homophobic, you know, somebody who thought, you know, if you don't believe like me, you are doomed. You know, God is going to just incinerate you if you don't. I've never met somebody with these kind of very logocentric, you know, panentheistic, you know, worldview that just was a horrible person, you know. People who believe that life is infused with a kind of divine and sacred dimension or that or that God is everywhere. People who believe that God is available to everybody regardless of their culture or their creed, these tend to be pretty humble, open-minded, and ethical people. I don't think that's a coincidence. You know, if, if you live with an awareness of the divine like that, if you live with the sense that God is here, God is now, that this is sacred, this is holy, you're sacred, you're holy, my neighbor is in fact Christ, as he taught us in Matthew 25, the one in need is in fact God's presence with us. If we, if we really live like that, I mean, that's, that's going to make us, I think, into Christ-like people. How could it not make us into Christ-like people? So that's my message today. I, I wanted to offer you kind of that vision of God because I find it deeply meaningful in my walk. And I was meditating on all that week at uh, St. John's with Aiden, and I hope that's helpful for you. And I wanted to wish you a very cosmic Christmas. 
Um, that's, that's basically what I wanted to get around to doing today. Let's pray. Loving God whose name we really don't know. Ineffable, undefinable, mysterious, and yet the event of our being itself. We pray that your presence, your peace, your comfort, your power, your wisdom might fill us. Inspire us, O Lord, to be agents of your peace and your healing and your hope in this broken, dark world. Give us a vision, we pray, for what that looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. I just wanted to say that I thought it was interesting that you focused on John 1 today because that passage is literally the genesis of my deconstruction. Really? <laughs> uh, when I was in Bible college, um, when I was doing a case study on uh, the Trinity. Yeah, I remember this now. Yeah, yeah. yeah Sorry, I think ahead. we've had this conversation before where I looked at... Uh, I had a friend who was a non-Trinitarian, which was new to me at the time, and he used that passage, and basically, uh, it changed, once I deconstructed the word logos, it completely changed my understanding of God, because uh, before, I think that the evangelical perspective on on logos is that it's a mathematical equation so logos means word and then later in another verse word equals jesus therefore jesus is word case closed so that's all it means we've solved the mystery of it all yeah exactly yeah. and so that's it but no once you understand what the word logos means there's no equivalent for it in our language it's it is this ineffable, weird, mystical idea of, like you said, I guess the best way I can also put it is the animating nature of the wisdom or reality that we live in. Yeah, and to be very clear, I'm using that language not as a way of nailing it down, but as a way of opening it up. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the idea for me, when I understand that Jesus is not this literal, like, quote-unquote, God, but that Jesus is this as literal as we can manifestation of this like inexplicable thing that ties the universe together. Um, so I just thought that that was really fascinating because that that's, again, like I said, the, the origin of my deconstruction and kind of like where I 
kind of land as well. So yeah, and you know, I wanted to mention in my talk tonight, I forgot to do it. That um, yeah, I was raised like you, Andrew, with this idea that Jesus was somehow literally the creator of the universe, confined in human form. So while that, and I was, I believe that while he was nursing at Mary's breast. Part of him was also making sure that the planets stayed in their proper orbit around the sun or, or that, you know, he was, you know, while he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, part of his mind was off creating the Andromeda galaxy. And, you know, he could have stopped and said, by the way, everybody, I just got done creating a galaxy. You'll know more about that in a few thousand years. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I know I'm being, I'm being um, somewhat mocking about that. <sighs> But that's the way I used to imagine God. And for me, I've discovered this, this, this radically more open and just, I feel like, more satisfying understanding of God, you know, in this idea of, you know, logos or penentheism. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, anybody else? Somebody else have a question or comment about today? Let me ask you this. You know, I talked about my experience at St. John's Cathedral this morning how are you rediscovering the sacred in your deconstruction? You know, some, many of us here talk, you know, for those of you who maybe didn't grow up in a conservative Christian tradition, you're like, what is deconstruction? But many of us are kind of, you know, working through religious trauma in our life and wondering what, if anything, Christianity means to us anymore. And, and so for a lot of us here, you know, we're in that state of deconstruction and questioning and, and taking apart what we believe and trying to reconstruct something. So I wanted to put it out there. How are you rediscovering the sacred, the divine, the presence of God in your, in your life, in your spiritual journey? What are ways that are working for you? Perhaps this is. <laughs> Hopefully it is. Um, anybody want to share that? Like what they're doing? Yeah, Jen. So I was raised super conservative, but also very um, like praise and worship and yeah. that kind of church. Yeah. Like our sanctuary the church that I went to, they had bought an old school building and they turned the gym into the sanctuary. So that's the church I was used to going to. So when I started going back to church a couple years ago, um, I didn't want to have anything to do with that style. So I went to a church that was like much more traditional and liturgical. So because it was a service that I hadn't been uh, that I had never kind of been to before. So it didn't have all those painful feelings that like praise and worship brings up, you know? Like I see like a band, you know, just everyone clapping and I just want to run, run away. <laughs> so liturgy and more traditional services, like this service that you were talking about, sound amazing to me. Like that's something I want to do because I find that I can connect so much, so much easier through that, that kind of service, so. Cool, yeah, yeah, thank you, yeah. Somebody else? Yeah, back there, it looks like Bryn. I think for me, um, on a similar vein, it's um, going back and allowing myself to identify with other sacred traditions, and um, I think growing up and um, reading certain things or being exposed to things in public school and having to kind of cast them aside because they were a different from a different religious tradition or 
um, uh, too like magical or you know what my parents would call hippy dippy. Um, <laughs> Um, I think allowing myself to go back, revisit those things, and um, identify with the sacredness in them. Um, I'm reading a book of um, Inuit and Native American prayers, and that's been really, like, crazy <laughs> for me. Um, and just, like, allowing myself to kind of see my own faith in some of those stories that historically I've been told were um, wrong or, you know, like almost like intrinsically bad. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. You know, um, would you be up for sharing it sometime, reading some of those prayers that you love? I think we would love to hear that here. We'll talk more about it. That, sound, that sounds great. Um, somebody else? <laughs> 